All right, good morning, Four Oaks. If I don't know you, you don't know me, I'm uh, Pastor Paul. So glad that you were here. Special bonus points for those who floated down here in their watercraft of choice this morning. So glad you made it. Um, But, you know, today is a convergence of two of my top five favorite days of the year. So first of all, it's Father's Day, of course, but it's also summer solstice. I don't know if you knew this, which means I get to eat and watch golf on the longest day of the year all day. So I am happy. And fathers, may your day be just as awesome as mine is going to be. Anyway, happy Father's Day. Before we can go to lunch, we have, right, important business in God's Word this morning. So open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Last week, we kicked off this 10-week series that we're spending um, this summer marching through called The Spirit-Driven Life. And we talked about this idea that we're going to be drilling down into one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you weren't with us, we just need a little refresher. Just a couple of reminders about what we're doing, what we're not doing here. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit are not primarily these character qualities that we aspire to work hard at in order to get a good grade in from God, right? This is not like we get to the end of this sermon series and we get to graduate from from moral finishing school or something like that. The fruit of the Spirit, rather, are gracious evidences. They're gracious marks that God gives us as believers so that we can discern, understand, and see what spiritual life looks like within us. See, spiritual fruit is not something that we can just sort of hocus, pocus, abracadabra, make happen in our lives. Fruit of the Spirit, those things God does in our hearts, are only produced as we engage Him, as we walk with Him, as He works in us to produce his righteousness. And as we talked about last week, walking in the spirit, and that's, that's one of those big religious technical words um, that, that people say, what does that mean? Walking in the spirit simply means this. It means that as a believer, you have an ongoing personal relationship with the person who lives inside of you. Do you know that if you were a Christian, if you placed your faith in Christ, a person lives in you, and that is Jesus Christ, who has sent his spirit to dwell in your hearts, to encourage you, to comfort you, to guide you, to convict you, to to motivate you, and to change you. And so this idea of walking in the Spirit means that, number one, we're entrusting ourselves to Christ. We're saying, Jesus, I'm all yours. Whatever it means, whatever the cost, whatever you want to do, I receive that. And it also means engaging Jesus. It means having this ongoing relationship where you're praying with your eyes open, where you're communing with him, where you're going to his word, you're getting to know him better, you're having him speak to you. And in this way, when we think about this, the fruit of the Spirit is really just a byproduct of that process of God working and moving and changing us. So there's nine fruits or character qualities, so to speak, that Paul lists here in Galatians 5. And we are going to march through those one at a time over the next nine weeks. And today we're going to begin with the first one. And it's the one attribute that John Lennon said that without this one, this is all you really need, right? And of course, this would be love. So if you can, willing, able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. I'm going to read the whole kind of context around this so we can get the flow. But let's read beginning in Galatians 5 verse 
16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, if we are brutally honest, we come to this well-known passage of Scripture. We read about the works of the flesh. We read about the works of the Spirit, and we stand convicted. We stand so far short. And so, Father, we pray that as we bring our humility and our need to you and our shortness of falling so um, short of the glory of God, that you will meet us in that place and that your spirit would do his work in our lives for your glory, Lord, for our good. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please take your seats. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, or if you've read your Bible or read any of Paul's other letters, it shouldn't surprise us that we find love as the very first fruit that Paul lists here. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Paul's writing, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Colossians 3.14 And above all, that's a big statement, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is not a peripheral theme in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, the scripture writers. And so it can be a little daunting to think about how we're to sort of unpack love here over the next three hours or so that we have together. No, come on. You've got lunch to go to, so we're not, we're not going too far there, right? But seriously, tomes, volumes, books, systematic theologies, ink has been spilled talking about love. So, so let me tell you what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus on one aspect of love, and I think it's the, it's the aspect that Paul okay, is writing about here, and that's the horizontal aspect of love. It's the love between people. Now, not romantic love per se, although the kind of love we're going to talk about this morning is certainly a part of romantic love. We're talking about love between people in the body of Christ. We're talking about the kind of love you have with your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers, the people that are on your kids' little league soccer team. We're talking about the, the neighbors that God has put in our 
proximity. And I think this is Paul's concern. So remember the context we talked about last week. In the churches in Galatia, there is dissension, there is arguing, there is envy, there's jealousy. This bitterness is ripping the body of Christ apart. Each side thinks that they're right about their particular interpretation of the law. And Paul looks at it all and he says, that's not a work of the Spirit. Not even speaking to who's right and who's wrong here, just the way that you're conducting yourselves, the way that that you're failing to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, I don't even have to pray about it. I know immediately that's not the work of the Spirit. And he lists these, these works of the flesh here in Galatians 5, and he's like, this is how I know that it's not Jesus sitting on the throne of your hearts in these matters. It's yourself, and it's your own selfish ambition and desires, and there's no love here. And so what we want to talk about is what does then love look like when the Spirit is at work in your heart and in my heart? What should we expect to see as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, as we nurture our relationship with Him? And Jesus, as He often is, is a great help here in Luke chapter 10. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 10. This is a passage that we're going to camp out on. And here, Jesus doesn't so much give us a technical definition of love. He doesn't so much give us a Webster's Dictionary definition of love, but he paints an extravagant picture of love. He paints a portrait. It's one of those things that you take just a glimpse at and you know immediately that's love. Now, this is an incredibly familiar passage. You undoubtedly studied it many times, and if you were a child of the 70s, on your felt board in Sunday school class, right? The Good Samaritan. But I'm really praying that as familiar as this passage might be to you, God would open your eyes to new things in it, because I think it is the biblical picture of love par excellence that we find in the Scriptures, now let's begin in verse 25, Luke 10. We'll flash, on, flash the text behind us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So there you see it, love. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "'Take care of him.'" And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer asks Jesus a question, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus does what Jesus does, a little spiritual jujitsu, and flips it around and says, well, you, you do tell me, Mr. Smarty Pants, you tell me what the greatest commandment is. And the, and, the, and the man says, well, it's to love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, absolutely, now go and do likewise. This will be, you'll be saved. Well, so the lawyer asks Jesus who it is exactly that he's supposed to love. Now, as Jesus tells this parable, this story, to answer that question, he's also answering another question. And that is the question of what does love look like? If our chief command before God is to love God and to love others, Jesus tells us this story and gives us a crystal, a clear picture of what that kind of love looks like. So there's four things I want to highlight from this story, from this text, as we begin to think about what does it mean for God to bear fruit through his spirit in our life in love. Okay, number one, here we go. Number one, love weighs the greater good. Love weighs the greater good. So if you look on a map, look, if you want to go from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's about 11 to 15 miles. There is, um, in a, you know, you, you start in Jerusalem at 3,000 feet above sea level and you go down 3,000 feet. Jericho's at the bottom, which means this is a rocky terrain. It's full of twists and turns and overhangs. Um, in In ancient times, it was a place, it was a route that was custom made for ambushes, for for robberies. People would lie in wait. And it was a treacherous journey. Um, And you had to be super vigilant, which means that when you were on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you better have a single-minded focus. There was no dilly-dallying around, right? There was no tailgating on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. You had wanted to get there and get done as fast as you can. So it's understandable, is it not, on one, one hand, why these two men passed on by. They're looking at this man for all they know he's dead. He's clearly been robbed. And what are they thinking? Uh, I don't want that to be me. I don't, I'm not going to tarry here and fill it around and let these guys come and attack and rob me and kill me as well. So clearly, physical safety is a concern. It kind of reminds me, if you've seen some of these videos lately, where people are being randomly or oftentimes for their race or ethnicity attacked on the street. And what's even more horrifying than the actual attack itself, which are unprovoked, is what everybody else in the video is doing, which is what? Nothing. Okay, checking their email, right? Video, you know, videoing it. Because there is just this, this certain latent fear that sort of paralyzes people. So we can understand that, right, with these guys. But I think also there's a deeper reason why they kept on moving along their way. Remember who these men were. The scribes were the elders of their day. These were the men who presided in the temple in Jerusalem. These were the men who offered sacrifices. They, they were the ones that, that were sort of the spiritual elite. The Levites were also very important. They were the deacons of our day. They were the ones who handled all the logistics of worship and cleanup and keeping every, all the trains running on time in the temple. In other words, they both occupied very important positions 
in Second Temple Judaism. And they understand that if they were to go over there and check that man to see if he was actually alive, and they touched him, in fact, and he was dead, they would be ceremonially unclean. This would mean that they would, have, they would be sort of disqualified from serving in the temple for a next period until they were ceremonially clean. They would, they would miss their job. They would miss their responsibilities. They're going into COVID protocol, right? That, that's where they're heading. And that would not do because they have very important things to attend to in the temple. They are God's servants, and they could not risk the important tasks that they had to do for God in order to check on this man. Now, understand something. This is going to get to our point here. It's not that the scribe and the Levite should not have been concerned about being ceremonially impure. They should have been. That's an important issue. But at that moment, it was far from the most important issue. You see, love weighs out all the competing loves and priorities that we are called to. And it acts on, at any given time, the most important one. And listen, often at the expense of the lesser good. Things that might be good, but they're just not as good in relationship to the most important thing. I won't tell you the name of the, of the restaurant, but this was several months ago. I can't, six, eight months ago, there was some sort of tornado, not a watch, okay, but an actual warning. So somebody spotted a funnel cloud somewhere in Leon County and everybody, uh, we, all, we all got alerts on our phones saying, seek shelter, seek shelter. And so a couple of our kids were driving around. They got, the, they got the alerts. They pulled over and they tried to go inside this restaurant to seek shelter. And what did the restaurant tell them? Sorry, we have COVID protocol, right? Okay. And so when you think about that for a second, like, wait a minute, you're worried about me going into a restaurant, but there is a, hypothetically, a tornado barreling down right on top of us. These aren't equal sorts of goods or risk here, right? And of course, this is exactly what we see in the gospels all the time. Sometimes Jesus would heal on the Sabbath on purpose, I think just to sort of stir it up. And what was the, oftentimes the complaint from the religious leaders? You shouldn't do that, Jesus. You're working on the Sabbath. You're walking a certain distance from home. You're making this man carry his mat. And Jesus would point out to them, you hypocrites. Even Moses said, if your ox falls in the ditch, okay, on the Sabbath, you can get it out because you don't want your ox to suffer. And you're telling me we can't help a person? We can't, we can't come to the aid of a human being made in the image of God. See, what Jesus is showing us here, and this is, it takes incredible wisdom, incredible leading by the Spirit to discern this, but in our lives, church, there are many competing priorities. There are many competing loves, and they all may be good in their own time, in their own context. But biblical love, spirit-filled love, is the one that knows what is most important to act on right now. And I was talking to to one of you before the service, and you said, you know, I always love Father's Day because Mother's Day, we tell the moms how awesome they are, and on Father's Day, we tell them how much they stink, okay? So this is not where this is going, okay? It's kind of true, actually. But let me say this. Men are called to be the chief lovers in their families. 
They're to love their wives. They're to love their children. They're to prioritize, to lead, to decide what is most valuable, what are our priorities going to be, what is the vision for our family, our vision for our spiritual souls, our lives, which takes an incredible amount of wisdom. And so in a culture that wants to beat up on men and dads and husbands particularly, can I just ask you as a church something? Would you please pray for the men? Would you pray that God would give them wisdom from his spirit? Would you pray that our men would be able to walk in the spirit and thus be able to prioritize and discern what it means to love at any particular time and in any particular circumstance. Men, let me just say this because I've tried. This is utterly impossible on your own. Utterly impossible. Men, we have to, we have to have our discerning eyes and ears for, towards what it means to walk moment by moment in the Spirit. See, if it's up to me, independent, autonomous, Paul Gilbert, I am going to decide on one particular direction. But when I am walking in the Spirit, when I'm listening to God's Word, when I'm praying, when I have other men around me speaking, guiding, and directing, then, and only then, does it become clear what love looks like in any particular situation, any particular time, on any particular day. So number one, I think Jesus tells us love is weighs the greater good. Okay, number two, let's go back to the text. Love is compassionate. Now it tells us in this story that when the priest and the Levite looked at this man, it was crickets, right? But when the Samaritan looked at this man, it said that he was evoked to compassion. Now, it's a reminder for us that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And these men saw this bloodied man and were indifferent to his plight. And so what we're asking under this point is why, why was the Samaritan the arch enemy of all Jewish people? Why was this man an enemy evoked to compassion while these other two men, religious leaders, no doubt, stalwarts, saw their fellow countrymen lying there bleeding? Why weren't their hearts moved towards him as well? That's the question. Remember who Samaritans were. Samaritans, for lack of a better term, were viewed by the Israelites as half-breeds. They were an exploited and discriminated against class of people. The Jews looked down upon them. They, they, they took journeys across Israel and went all the way around Samaria as to not contaminate themselves religiously to interact with them. Remember James and John? They're called the sons of thunder. Why? Because... They asked Jesus to bring down thunder and fire, right, on top of the villages of Samaria that wouldn't repent. Jews hated Samaritans. They were subhuman in their eyes. And when we think about the Samaritan, 
when he's walking on the road and he sees this helpless man, this Jew, bleeding, ready to die, what did he see? Well, I think we get a clue about what he saw when it uses this word compassion. The idea with this word with compassion is that he saw himself. He saw himself in that man's situation. That could have been me. That has been me. You see, metaphorically, this is exactly who Samaritans were. They were beat up by everyone and left on the side of the road to die. When the Levites and scribes came by, they didn't see themselves in this man. And we can probably guess the kinds of things that were running through their minds, just like you and I, they run through our minds when we see people in need. What do we say? Well, you know, that man should never have been traveling by himself from Jericho to Jerusalem. If that man had only developed, had committed his life to religious service, then God would be protecting him just like he's protecting us. See, that's oftentimes our temptations, let's be honest. That when we see others' plights, other struggles, their hardships, we immediately begin to think about, now whose fault was it? Was it that kid's fault or his parents' fault? You know, if, if, if they had just made the decisions that we made when we were at that time in our lives, then they wouldn't be having to deal with this. I mean, this is how the human heart works. Some of us, if we're brutally honest... We might even see the plight of others, their suffering, and get just a sense, a smug sense of satisfaction, right? I'm so glad that we made the decisions that we made. I'm so glad that we did the things that we did. Just look, look at that. But see, that's not the response of the Spirit-filled life. See, the response of the Spirit-filled life is to say, I am that man. God, but for your grace... Lord, I am a humble, broken, needy man or woman. I need your supernatural, sovereign, working grace in my life. See, apart from seeing our own need, ourselves, and the sufferings of others, will we be compelled to love and to act on their behalf? See, the Samaritan, he had been there so many times right? You could just imagine what it was like growing up as a Samaritan and how the few Jews that he might come across in a typical day would all be ones that would sort of look down upon him in disdain or make fun of him or his heritage or his ethnicity. But when he saw that bleeding man who couldn't help himself, I think when he says he had compassion, it means, oh, I know exactly what that's like. This is, this, is the, this, this is the story of my life. Now, let me ask you a question before we leave this point. Where, Christian, do you need grace to ask God to open your eyes to the needs around you? Who, who are the people or situations or things in your life that, let's just be honest, you have a really hard time loving. Maybe there's some sort of bitterness. Maybe there's some sort of grudge. Maybe there's some sort of condemnation, some sort of judgmentalism, some sort of like, 
I, I mean, I know I've got my problems, come on, but like that, whew, that's, that's way out there. And God would say, I don't think you know yourself. See, apart from my grace, this is all of us. And all of us need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Where does God, church, need to open your eyes to that in your life? I think as you pray that over the situations that you're currently struggling with, here's how you'll know the Spirit's working. You'll begin to feel compassion. There will just be a thawing out of that hardness and that ice that's sort of encapsulating your heart. And you'll begin to feel again and have a movement towards those around you. So that's the second point. Number three, we'll get to these last two a little quicker. Number three, love is sacrificial. And I don't think it takes a lot to see that in this text. I do want to, to start off by looking at verse 31. Jesus tells us this, and I think this is a, it's a, on purpose. Verse 31, it says, now by chance a priest as he was traveling. In other words, Jesus is wanting to emphasize with these two men that they weren't expecting to come across a near dead man lying there on the road. They weren't expecting to have their day interrupted. They weren't expecting to have to stop on their journey. See, and that's oftentimes the way love presents itself, isn't it? I mean, those are like the, the, the supreme moments of testing when you sort of organize your life and your day and you're doing what you're doing and God brings a need across your path and you have to make a spiritual calculation in that moment and that's what these men did. They made a spiritual calculation and it probably went something like this. Well, what's going to happen to me if I stop and help? What's going to happen to me, my day, my time, my job, my money, my whatever, if I actually have to love and serve in this particular situation? And they clearly made a calculation, and we are constantly making calculations, right? The cost, the sacrifice, the inconvenience, the potential trouble, time, all of those things, guys, and love can be measured by what it costs. Now, Martin Luther King famously said, and I think it was maybe in one of his letters, maybe his letter from the Birmingham jail, I can't remember, but he, but he said this. He said, the issue is not what's going to happen to me if I do help. That's not the most important issue. The most important issue is what's going to happen to them if I don't. You see, when you are watchful, praying in the Spirit, looking for direction, praying with your eyes open, you know what inconveniences become? They become opportunities. They become opportunities for the love and grace of Christ in and through you. And we have to understand something. The sacrifice of this Samaritan is not trivial. Think about this for a second. The Samaritan is much further from home than these two guys from Jerusalem. They're in the neighborhood. They live right up the road. Samaritan lives halfway across the country. He's off the beaten path. It says that he supplied two denarii to this innkeeper, which is not an insignificant amount of money. It's probably enough to, to, to cover like some days, even weeks of care. It's the difference between going to urgent care, right, or going for a four-week stay in the hospital. 
That's what the Samaritan was paying for. Oil and wine, these are luxuries. These are necessities that Jesus is pointing out. But you know what I think might have been the biggest cost to this man? His biggest sacrifice? I think it might have been his reputation. So I want you to think about this for a second. When that man finally returns home to Samaria, you can imagine what they're going to ask him. What took you so long? Why why were you delayed? You said you would be back next week, but now it's next month. You don't, you know, his wife, you don't have as much money with you as you started with, right? Tell me what's been happening over the past month. Oh, see, honey, what happened is that I saw a Jewish man lying half dead in the road, and I had compassion, and I was compelled to help him. Folks, I'll just ask you again the same sort of questions I was asking before. Is there a place in your life where you're struggling with what the sacrifice of love might cost you? Is there somewhere in your life where you've been looking at it primarily through a lens of what is this going to mean to me if I do this? When God would have you ask, what's going to happen in this situation or with this person or with this family if I don't? Because I understand these things are complex. I understand that it takes incredible discernment and wisdom. That's why we need people in our lives speaking to these things. I don't mean to say in a glib way, this is going to, to clarify all the issues in your life. I'm just simply saying these are the kinds of questions the spirit-filled man or woman asks themselves. It's what God honors and blesses and smiles upon I don't know what God will do in your life. As you begin asking these kinds of questions, there might be complex, intractable situations in your life that God, maybe for the first time, begins to provide some level of clarity or some level of direction or some point of discernment. But love is sacrificial. Finally, last point, love is boundaryless. And I'm pretty sure we made that one up. Okay, boundaryless, right? I want to go back to the beginning of the story because I think this might be the most profound point of all. The lawyer asked Jesus a question. And his question was the second question. The first one was, what is, what's the greatest commandment of the law? But the second question was, well, then Jesus, okay, I'm supposed to love the Lord my God, all my heart, soul, and strength, and my neighbor of myself, well, well, tell me, Jesus, who, who is my neighbor exactly? Now, it says, Luke tells us, that he said this to justify himself. Now, what, what is, what's going on here? You see, the religious leaders in this point of life of the religious history of Israel had set the law up in such a way that they could sort of check off boxes to signify their obedience. In other words, easily attainable for them sort of standards of the law that didn't really engage their heart, didn't really engage their soul. They were just behavioral 
outward manifestations of things. They could say, I did that. I checked that off. God and I are good. In other words, they set boundaries around their service. And they did it in order to circumvent the claims of the law on their heart. And so they did this with the Sabbath. They did it with something called Korban, which in the New Testament times, Korban was, was an oath that you would take to set aside a particular amount of money for use in the temple or for God's purposes. Well, there was a clear scriptural command to love and provide for your parents. Well, the, re, the way the religious leaders got away from this or around this because they were greedy and they loved being rich is they just simply declared part of their income Corban. Like, I'm going to set that aside for a rainy day in case I ever need it for something God might need way down the road. But this urgent need of caring for my parents, I'm not going to do that. And so the religious leaders were experts at circumventing the law. And let me tell you what I think happened. I think they saw Jesus, who was serving everybody, who was loving everyone, And their conscience was pricked. And he's sort of on the defensive here saying, well, well, Jesus better tell me who my neighbor is because I'm certainly not going to be doing all the things that you're doing. I'm sure God would not ask me to do those sorts of things. It's like in in a dating relationship and saying, well, you know, Pastor Paul, tell me, how far is too far physically in a dating relationship? Well, what's the intent of that question? Is the intent to say, I want to honor God and, and walk in purity and holiness. No, it's about yourself. It's like, how, how close can I get up to the line, right? And maybe go over slightly and not get burned. This, is, this was their attitude towards the law and towards love and service. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew it. And here is how he put his thumb right on their hearts. He made the hero of the story a Samaritan. Not just any Jew, not even just like a lowly shepherd, not not, not even like a, a junior scribe or Pharisee, but he made him a Samaritan. In other words, what Jesus is wanting to show is that the love that I call you to, the love that that I want to empower you towards is a love that, that transposes all known boundaries, race, religion, culture, class, which all the things apply to the Samaritans, and plus even this one, even your enemies. Even your enemies. You want to know who your neighbor is? Teacher of the law? Your neighbor is anyone God brings in your path that you have the capacity to meet that need. That, that, that's your neighbor. That's where love is worked out. Guys, we're, we're, we're big on societal declarations of love this or love that or be for this cause or that cause. But a lot of times, this stuff is worked out right where? Right in our day-to-day relationships. Right in the face of those things God calls us to do with the people he's put in our lives today. See, this man knew very likely that the guy that he was helping, the Samaritan was helping this Jew, 
He was doing that knowing very well this man probably hated his guts. Just let me ask you a question. Because we're, we're in an age and a culture right now of just endless outrage about any number of things. Who, who, who do you find it very difficult to love? What, what group of people? What political party? What class? What race? What socioeconomic status? What religion? Jesus says, the love of the gospel transposes all of those areas. It encompasses all of them. It's greater than every single one. You know, it's interesting when you consider the example of the Samaritan. And, and, and by the way, this is a fictitious character. You, re- you realize this, right? It's a fictitious character. Jesus conjured him up. And we look at this and we say, look at this man, the way he prioritized and was compassionate and sacrificial and his love had no bounds. Man, there is nobody around here like that. Do you see anybody around here like that? To which Jesus would say what? No, of course not. Because I'm the good Samaritan. I'm this man. I'm the one who was persecuted, cast aside, who laid his life down for his enemies. I'm the one whose love was sacrificial, was compassionate, was not confined by any human factor or barrier. I knew what it meant at that time to lay my life down for my sheep. And so if you're looking for that person, you're looking in the mirror, you're not that person. You're looking around, you can't see that person. I came to die for that person who wasn't these things. Jesus says, I lay my life down. I am the good Samaritan. Guys, when we read this story anew, my hope and prayer is that you see that what we have in this passage is nothing less than gospel love on display. That this is the movement of God to say, I have laid my life down for all of you who would simply turn in faith and trust and obedience to me. I've laid my life down because I know that you struggle to love this way. I know you have failed in love in this way, but my love has never failed. See, this kind of love is only possible horizontally when we understand the vertical love of Christ given to us on the cross. Yes, we want to pray for these things and emulate these things. But church, do you know the good shepherd? Do you know the good Samaritan who laid his life down for you? Let's pray.